The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We're looking at Esther chapter 2. And just to recap what Kylan uh, took us through in the story last week, uh, the, the glory days, uh, this, this, this is set in uh, just after the Babylonian exile. So the glory days of King David and all that were well and truly over, and God's people had wandered far from him. And despite the fact that God had sent his prophets to warn them and plead with his people to return to him, they didn't. They, they kept walking away from God. And so they received his punishment. They went into exile. They were attacked by the Babylonians and taken off as prisoners to a foreign land. However, by God's provision, the Jews were allowed to return to the homeland 70 years after that exile. And the story of Esther takes place another 40 years past that. A number of Jews didn't return to their homeland, to Judea, including Esther and her family. And this is the setting of this story. So to just help us through with the story, I've divided it into three sections. Uh, section number one, or point number one, we have the world's corrupt kingdoms. Point number two, we have God's questionable, questionable people. And point number three, God's sovereign plan. So point number one, the world's corrupt kingdoms. Picking up the story where we left off from last week, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, if we go by his Greek name, was a powerful and wealthy man of extravagant taste. He was politically ambitious, he was really into himself, and he was really actually quite insecure. At a large celebration, he wanted to show off the beauty of his wife, Queen Vashti, to all of his drunken and lusty friends, uh, but she refused to appear. She didn't want a bar of it. And so, following the advice of his advisors, he removed her as queen. Like, if you're not going to come and dance for me and my friends, you don't get to be queen anymore. This guy is as insecure as he is powerful. So now... Kingdom of Persia is without a queen. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 2 that sometime later, this is about four years, when King Ahasuerus' rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. So what's he to do? What's he going to do? Well, he needs his buddies around him, his advisors around him, to steer him in the right direction. And at this point, we might be starting to pick up on a bit of a pattern with King Ahasuerus. He struggles to make any, any decisions on his own. He always needs someone to come in and tell him what to do. Reading from verse 2, the king's personal attendants suggested, let a search be made for, a beautiful, for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa. Put them under the supervision of Haggai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. The suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So the plan is really quite simple. Gather all of the beautiful young virgins throughout the vast empire of the, king, of the Persian kingdom. Now, just so we know, that, that's the 127 provinces of, of Persia. That includes Judea. 
where the Israelite, where a lot of the Israelites had gone back to after Babylonian exile. So there were commissioners sent to Judea at this time. They had to hold a pageant of sorts of all these young women, these beautiful young women, and the winner will become queen. We get a few more details in verse 12. During the year before each young woman's turn to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch Shashgaz keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Now, just reading this, it's hard to tell if this would have been an attractive prospect for a young woman. Yes, they would have been treated to the most luxurious items that money could buy. These women would have been, uh, their, their daily needs would never be an issue for them again. This could be an opportunity to escape the hand that they had been dealt in life. It kind of sounds like The Bachelor, doesn't it? Like it's all about, it, kind of, it, it, it seems like it's all about love and romance. And some people have tried to press this story. They've assumed that this is a love story between a, a powerful king and a lowly, beautiful handmaiden. But we would be mistaken, I think if we attempted to press this story into that kind of mold, it just doesn't fit. If the woman was unsuccessful in pleasing the king, she would never be able to return home. She would live the rest of her days in that second harem as a concubine. She would never be able to return to her family. She would never be able to get married and raise children, raise a family of her own. She would have no prospects of her own, and she would spend the rest of her days in that harem, waiting for the king to see if he would ever remember her again and summon her by name. It really was a severe imbalance of power. Quite likely, hundreds of women would become a smorgasbord for the sexual appetites of the king. They had to please him. Nothing is said about what he should do for them. It is, a, it is imbalanced. He would pick and choose. And they were treated as if they were his property to be kept in storage until he desired them. This is the corrupt world that our, that our story is set in. Powerful people taking advantage of the vulnerable and using them for their own gain. And it doesn't sound too dissimilar from our world, does it? the world that we find ourselves in, where the vulnerable and the lowly are so often disregarded for the appetites of the powerful. And there's no shortage of examples of this. We could talk about the porn industry, where women are degraded and, and objectified for the pleasures of others. We could point to the industries that exploit people in third world countries for the appetites of the rich and we could look not just outward to these large industries, but also inward to the injustice of our own hearts, where each of us have this propensity to think and to act highly of ourselves at the cost of others. 
Not a single one of us is immune from sin. The deep and wretched problem of mankind is intensely embedded in personal sin. We, we can look out at the entire world and, and, and see, oh, these are all the problems with it, but we've also got to look inward at our hearts to see that, that I, my, my heart is, the, the problem with this is that my heart is embedded in personal sin. Sin is primarily a treacherous and treasonous assault on God. And secondarily, it is a vicious and self-centered assault on others. There's no such thing as a sin that does not harm the people around us. And there is simply no structure on earth that can reform our hearts out of their sinful disposition. This is the kind of world that Esther's story occurs in, and it's the kind of world that our story occurs in as well. And Esther and Mordecai are going to help us to understand how we can walk in this world. But we can say at least this for now. Don't fall in love with this world and its structures. Beware of the intoxicating pull of mankind's towering achievements. So, how do God's people navigate this world's corruption? Well, this is where we come across two of the main characters of the story. We finally get introduced to Mordecai and Esther. And this is point number two, God's questionable People, when we read the Bible, we can sometimes fall into the trap of assuming that there are goodies and baddies, and that the central message of the Bible is to be like one of the goodies and don't be like one of the baddies. But this story, and actually all of the Bible and real life, actually just doesn't cut neatly like that. And those categories are actually a lot harder to define. So if we read from verse 5, we read that in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Now we might miss this from the text, but I think the writer wants us to ask a question at this point, and the question is, What was Mordecai still doing in Susa? Forty years earlier, King Cyrus had made a proclamation that any Jew was allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their lives there. What was Esther and Mordecai still doing in Susa? Why did they remain? Isaiah had prophesied that when the time came to return, the Jews should, should leave Babylon, they should flee their captors. Yes, the path to Jerusalem is going to be fraught with danger and the rebuilding process is going to be slow and difficult. But, but don't be deceived that life in Babylon is any better. Don't be deceived by the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. There is no peace for the wicked, Isaiah says. So why hadn't Mordecai returned? Could it be that he found a new life in what was now Susa? Could it be that his ascension into the important ranks of Persian society was just too good to throw away for the prospect of a difficult and uncertain future in Jerusalem? Maybe Mordecai had grown accustomed to life in Susa. Mordecai's name actually incorporates the name Marduk, the state god of Babylon, and so maybe his family had been assimilated into their captor's culture. 
We don't know why he stayed, but this guy Mordecai, his life is suddenly thrust into the center of the story because he is the legal guardian of Esther, or her Hebrew name Hadassah, who we're told in verse 7 had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. So of course with those credentials, she lives in Susa, she is going to be a prime candidate for the position of queen. We read in verse 8 that Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. Now, it's unclear what Esther and Mordecai thought about all of this. We're not told whether Esther was a willing participant in this or if she was taken against his will. So on the one hand, it does say that Esther was taken to this harem. That she, it doesn't say that she was taken against her will, but we're not too sure how she was acting about this, how she was feeling about this. On the other hand... We're also told that she gained great favor immediately with Haggai. Verse 9 says that the young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of her beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Later on, it says that when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Haggai suggested. She seems to be acting cleverly in this, or at least in a way to, to, to be successful. She did well out of this, and, and it kind of looks like she might be leaning into it a little bit. It's unclear if anything is driving Esther here, but what is clear is that she was now in an environment that did not cultivate, but rather crushed her Jewish heritage. And this is why I've titled this point, God's Questionable People. It's hard to know what was going on behind the scenes for Mordecai and Esther. And this point is made even more complex by verse 10 where it says that Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. That same point occurs again in verse 20, and it has us scratching our heads, right? Look, I've read this many times, and it's like, why? By ordering her to conceal her Jewishness, was, was Mordecai trying to secure Esther's safety? Or was he trying to secure her success? We don't know. It's ambiguous, and that seems to be by design. If you're familiar with the story, you'll know that we're going to see undeniable bravery from both Mordecai and Esther. We're going to see courage from both of them. There's no doubt about that. It's just that at this point of the story, that's unclear whether they're there yet. And this is why the story is so helpful for us as we navigate what it means to be faithful to a God in a hostile world. If you're thinking, I'm not sure I have what it takes, then lean into the story of Esther because it's going to be helpful for us. If you were watching the news last week, you might be aware of Andrew Thorburn, who was pressured into resigning his role as CEO of the Essendon Bombers because of his close and clear and firm association with his church that opposes abortion, uh, it upholds the biblical ethic of marriage between, being between one man and one woman, and holds to the biblical stance that homosexual acts and lusts are sinful. Now, there's much that can be said there, but maybe it's got you thinking, what does 
life look like in my industry in the near future if I hold to a biblical worldview? What do I do when the boss hands me a rainbow lanyard to wear for Pride Week? What do I do when my workplace adopts values that go against what I believe the Bible says to be true? As faithful Christians, we want to spread the gospel. We want to engage our culture and the people in it in meaningful, incredible ways. We want people to know the truth and the beauty of Jesus. And at the same time, we hold to biblical convictions that we believe are good, but are often regarded as abhorrent by our wider culture. And in these moments, we can feel the pull to either conceal our faith and stay under the radar, or on the other hand, to remain faithful but withdraw from the world. How do we stay faithful to a God in a world that is hostile to the faithful? This is why Esther is so helpful. Because we might read this story and we might be tempted to think to ourselves, wow, God chose some really brave and courageous people there to carry out his plan. Esther is amazing, but man, I could never be that brave. The reality, though, is that God doesn't choose the brave and the courageous to fulfill his plans. He chooses to work through cowards and wimps and idiots precisely because that brings him glory. No credit goes to the dopes when God is at work in them. The credit goes to God. Maybe you read stories like Esther and your shoulders slump a little bit because you're not sure if you have what it takes. Maybe you look at all the other people at church this morning and you feel like you're a little bit of an imposter, like I can see them being brave, I can understand how she would be able to stand for her faith, but I don't know if I've got what it takes to remain standing in that moment. Maybe you've come to believe that God is uninterested in ever working in you or through you, and he's indifferent towards you, and in fact, he might be a little bit hesitant to work towards you, less work in you, lest the mission be compromised. If that's where you're at, I've got good news for you. You're wrong. We couldn't be more naive than in thinking that. God chooses the weak and the detested and the morally corrupt and the questionable for salvation and to achieve his work. And the scriptures are not short of examples of this. When God chooses us, we don't have to turn up with our resume. When God chooses us, he doesn't first check our references. When God chooses us, it's not because we've given him a long list of reasons for him to love us. When God chooses us, it's not because we've got potential. In fact, if we believe any of those things that are true, it jeopardizes any chance of us ever actually enjoying God's work in our lives. No, the reality of God is that he saves the inexperienced. He saves the unlovely, the helpless, the ugly, the misfits, the dopes, and the forgettable people of this world. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, says Paul, and I am the worst of them. So what is it that gives Esther the bravery that we're going to read about in the chapters to come? Well, I think it's the undeniable fact that God has a plan to save his people, and he's going to use Esther according to his good purposes to achieve his ends. She finds herself in a position where she is the one to do so. 
And this is where we come across our last point, God's sovereign plan. God is working behind the scenes of this story to bring about his plans for his people. So despite the fog of their motives, Esther becomes queen. The king is delighted with her and he puts the crown on her head and they have a big celebration in the kingdom. But that's not the end of the story. Esther becoming queen is not the point of the story. It's not the triumphal end that we might be accustomed to. This is a story about how God saved his people from certain destruction. And we get a hint of this in verse 21. It says, During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in this historical record in the king's presence. Now, this little addendum, if you're just reading through, it feels like it's this little part of the story that is just jammed into the story. But this little story is going to light a fuse that is going to be detonated in a few weeks' time. This is perhaps the first of many little moments that I'm going to refer to as the it-just-so-happened moments. It just so happened that Mordecai was at the king's gate that day. It just so happened that he was uh, placed within earshot of Big Than and Teresh. It just so happened that these two men who were planning to kill the king were talking loud enough that Esther, so that Mordecai couldn't hear it. And it just so happened that Mordecai knew someone on the inside of the palace who could warn the king and preserve the king's life. Because it would be this king who would pronounce an edict later on that would save the lives of God's people. Like a master chess player, God moves the pieces around according to his sovereign plan to save his people. And this is what helps questionable people like you and I, who don't necessarily feel particularly brave in the face of hostility, to navigate the corrupt kingdoms of our world. It's the knowledge of God's indisputable plan to save sinners from their sin and for his glory. It's the knowledge that we actually have the best news on this earth. And even though our world is hostile towards people of faith, we can go to that world with the best news ever, that eternal life is truly possible through Jesus Christ alone. Here's what we get with Jesus. God is real. And that's just a great place to start. God is real. And when we sin, it's not that we slipped up a little bit and he's really fussy. It's that he's perfect. And anything less than perfect than perfection is incinerated by his white-hot perfection. The Bible calls this holiness, and you and I are far from it. And our sin, whether it's really obvious in things like stealing or lying, or really unobvious like greed or jealousy, is akin to tearing God off his throne and clambering up that ourselves and trying to make ourselves king in his place. So we deserve the full brunt of his wrath. Not a single one of us is immune to sin and not a single one of us can do anything to fix it. 
But instead of condemning us, that same God left his throne, came to earth, and lived a perfect life on our behalf. And every single person who doesn't run from God, but instead casts themselves upon his infinite mercy, gets the credit for Jesus' perfect life. Jesus' perfect record gets so firmly secured to us that it's basically as if we have lived that perfect life. And when it comes to the day of judgment, God is going to look at us. And those who are in Christ, he will look at us and say, righteous. That person is righteous. That person, I've credited righteousness to their account. That person is holy because of Jesus Christ. That's precisely what we as Christians believe is true. And it's the best news ever. And the message of the gospel is that true life is found in Jesus and no one or nothing else. And we can tell people the incredible news of our God who loves us and forgave our sins and saved us from the internal punishment that we deserved. Know that God has put you in that hospital. He's put you in that medical center, in that school, in that street, in that cafe, on that work site, in that store, wherever it is. Because he has a plan to get that news, to get that message to the people who are there. And he's going to bring that, plan, that through his plan. He's going to bring about his plan through dopes like you and I. Maybe you're feeling like a bit of a coward when it comes to sharing your faith. Maybe you're more inclined or you have a a bit of a track record of concealing your faith. If that's you, the story is not over. God isn't done with you yet. God didn't choose you because of your bravery, but because the opposite is true. And when the moment comes and you step up to the plate and you're trusting that God really is good, and that God really knows what he's doing, and that he's put you there with the best news ever, and you open your mouth and you trust him, he'll get glory for it. Bathe our minds, bathe your mind in the great and perfectly orchestrated plans of God for mankind. Push his unconditional love for you deep into your heart. Trust that God put Esther where God wanted Esther, and God has put you where he wants you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcast free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.